Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you. We are never alone, no matter how dark the hour might be, no matter how great the struggle is, no matter how, how large the waves seem to be, we are never alone. You truly are our foundation, and you are our shelter, and you are our rock, and you are our anchor, and there is nothing that can separate us from your love. Oh, would you please just imprint those truths upon our hearts today? As we come to Mark again, I pray that you would help us to understand and know more about our precious Savior Jesus. And the more that we understand about him, I pray that you would use that to help our love for him grow and our faith in him to also grow. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. It's 1901, Pastor Frank Grafe, he wrote a song, and the verses are really just a series of soul-searching questions. Let me just read those to you. Does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth and song? As the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long? Does Jesus care when my way is dark with a nameless dread and fear as the daylight fades into deep night shades? Does he care enough to be near? Does Jesus care when I've tried and failed to resist some temptation strong? When for my grief I find no relief, though my tears flow all the night long? Does Jesus care when I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me and my sad heart aches till it nearly breaks? Is that aught to him? Does he see? Have you had those times when you feel like your heart is to the point of breaking? When despair and doubts are threatening to pull you under and you don't know if you can even hang on for one moment more. Those times when hardships are just overwhelming you. Those times when grief blinds you to the reality of God's presence. And, and you wonder, not only, not only do you wonder if he cares, you wonder if he's even there. You see, I, th- I think we've all been there. I think we've all had those times. And in all honesty, some of you may be there right now going through some type of struggle that just seems so big, so difficult. And you wonder... <laughs> Does Jesus care? But I tell you this, we are not the first to struggle with those very thoughts, those very questions. Even those who traveled with Jesus, those who were taught by Jesus, those who saw many of his miracles, they also struggled with those same thoughts. So I hope you're with with me in Mark chapter 4. And I really have four points. It's a well-known story. I'm sure you're very familiar with it, but 
I'm hoping that God will use it maybe just to touch our hearts in a special way this morning. So I have four points from Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Number one is this, an unexpected and terrifying storm. Let me read a few verses. I'm going to begin 35 and have you just follow along. On that day, when evening had come, he, that's Jesus, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Now, there's a lot of things in this story that are familiar, but there's a lot of things we don't really know. For example, we don't know how many boats there were. We don't know how many disciples were involved. I want you to remember this. There were 12 apostles, but when it uses the term disciples or followers of Jesus Christ, there were many of them. So we don't know how many disciples were actually with Jesus. And like I said, we don't know how many boats had been launched on that night. But there are some things that we do definitely know. For example, we know about the Sea of Galilee. You see it there on the map before you. And it's actually a freshwater lake. It's not a sea. It's approximately 13 miles long, north to south, and it's about seven miles wide. We also know that Jesus had been ministering in Capernaum, which you see there on the northwest tip of the sea. And we also know from chapter 5, verse 1, which we will look at next Sunday, we know that when Jesus said, let's cross over to the other side, that meant going to the area, the country there of the Gerasenes. You can see on the map where it says Gergesa. That's probably where they were going to, from Capernaum to Gergesa. We also know that the Sea of Galilee is given to sudden and violent storms. It's almost 700 feet below sea level, but it is surrounded by hills and mountains. And in fact, just 30 miles to the north, there's Mount Hermon, which rises up to 9,200 feet in elevation. And so what, would ha- what happens in that region, in that area, cold air will sometimes sweep down off from the mountains, and it will collide with the warm air rising up off from the waters. And on the Sea of Galilee, because of that, that collision of the cold and the warm airs, it will be, it's given to these sudden squalls and terrible storms that can just pop up seemingly out of nowhere, just as it did that night that we just read about. Add to that the element of darkness. Oh my goodness, you have a situation where we see here even the most experienced sailors and fishermen and many of Jesus' disciples, and especially some of the apostles, we know that they were fishermen. They had spent many, many, many hours upon this sea, this lake, and yet this storm rose up so suddenly that they were filled with absolute panic and terror. We also know I think this is so interesting. We know about the size of the boats that they used. You see, in, in 1986, it's kind of a cool thing. In, in, buried within the mud of the northern shore there, the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, they excavated a fishing boat. It's approximately 2,000 years old. In other words, right from the time 
of Christ. And based on that, it was found only five miles from Capernaum. Based on that, this, we have this artist drawing or rendition of the type of boat that Jesus and his disciples were probably using on that night. The boat, not that you need to know all of these exactly, but it was 26 and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and about four and a half feet high. And these boats would often have a small deck in the stern, which you can see there on that drawing. And each one of these boats, because of the relative size of them, they they could hold up to 15 men. So they were good-sized boats. Again, we don't know how many boats there were. We don't know how many people there were, but we do know a lot of those things. And I think that that helps us to understand the events of this night that we are going to be studying. Point number two is this. A wrong question prompted by fear. So, hey, if you're in a terrifying, life-threatening situation, <laughs> I don't know what you, I cannot think of anyone better to have with you than Jesus. Can you? I mean, that's just like, wow, that's my guy. I'm with him. He's with me. Whew, I am so glad. Now, oh, sure, the disciples here, they were facing perhaps the most severe and terrifying storm that they had ever been in. And sure, the waves, as we read here, they were coming now up over the side, sides of the boat. They were filling it with water. But come on, they were with Jesus. He was in the boat. They had seen him heal a man of leprosy. They had seen him make a paralytic man walk. They had seen him restore a man's withered hand to perfect condition. They had seen him heal many, many people. They had seen him cast out demons from people. So, Storm, do your best because we have Jesus in the boat. But wait, back the storm truck up just a minute there, okay? I don't really know if a storm truck is a thing, but it works for me. Because there was something terribly wrong. Let's look at verse 38. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. So let me get this straight. In the midst of of probably the worst storm that these followers of Jesus had ever faced when they really needed him the most. (laughs) Jesus was asleep. I mean, really? Jesus sleeping in the midst of this storm? Now, it's interesting, Mark, even though he's the briefest of all the gospel writers, he gives us a little bit of information that none of the other ones do. He talks about that Jesus was asleep on a cushion. Don't think that that was a really super well-padded, he had just a really great little thing, though. It probably was just a leather pad that often the person steering the boat would sit on, and Jesus probably then was just using it as a pillow. But think about this with me. They're in this horrible storm. The waves are coming up over the side of the boat. How in the world could he have been asleep? Well, I tell you, to be sleeping in that kind of a storm, he must have been utterly and completely exhausted. Right? It's on the day after he had been giving the parables, and on that day we had talked about earlier, he had healed people. He had been doing so much And I think giving yourself to people had exhausted him to the point where he was able to sleep, even in the midst of this terrible storm. 
It also tells us something else that he was able to sleep. He was not worried or fearful. But they were, right? They were afraid for their lives. And so what they did is they they woke him up. Now, personally, I think that was a smart thing to do. I'm, I'm with them. I think right now they're still doing pretty well here. But then, but then they asked a question that, well, they didn't do so well on that one. I think it's actually, you look at it, it's kind of almost insulting to Jesus. But look at the middle of verse 38. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? What in the world? Why would they ask a question like that? These men, they had seen so many miracles of Jesus already. These men knew the Old Testament. Trust me, they knew the Old Testament much better than we do. So I am certain, absolutely certain, that they were familiar with the Psalm of David, Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. They knew that. I am certain that they knew Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam. They knew those verses. So how could they ask such a question of Jesus Like I said, I think an insulting question of him. How in the world could they do that? Well, I think think there are at at least two reasons. A, they didn't yet believe that he was truly God. Yes, he did great miracles. They had seen that. But these waves were really big, and they were filling now the boat with more and more water. So I think that they were wondering, maybe Jesus really wasn't the Son of God. Look at verse 41, after, after he calms the storm. This is the end of the story. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? I want you to notice something. After the storm, their fear was even greater than during the storm. That What it says here in our English Bible is great fear. That could literally be tr- translated as terrified. They really did not know who or what Jesus was. Second reason that I think that they asked that question is fear blinded them to the truth. He had called, think about this, he had called and chosen them to be his disciples. They had seen his love, they had seen his compassion, they had seen him as he reached out and healed many people of their diseases. They had seen him as he had cast demons out of many people, freeing them from that demon possession. Of course he cared for his disciples, too. Of course. It's so obvious to us reading it. But just as it can do to you and I, fear made them start to doubt. 
the truth. That's why I think they asked the question. Well, third point, Jesus' power on full display. Look at verse 39. And he, Jesus, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace! Be still! And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. This is amazing. Just three simple, short words. Peace! Be still! The NIV translates as quiet, be still. And that's actually a better translation than what the ESV does. Because the Greek word that Mark uses here, it means literally to be silent. It means be quiet. It even means to be muzzled. The the New American translates it as hush, be still. I kind of like that one. But it's just Jesus, he gets woken up. And he just immediately addresses the storm and the sea. Quiet! Hush! Be still! And as soon as he spoke those words, the wind ceased. And I want you to notice it says that there was a great calm. Think of that with me. If he had just stilled the wind, the waters and the waves, they would have taken a while for things to settle down, right? This was something super significant, the power and authority that he shows here. Because there's nothing gradual about this. Nothing at all. A terrifying, life-threatening storm instantly, instantly turned into absolute stillness. The Greek word for calm, it means an unruffled surface on a body of water. So in other words, what happened is as soon as he spoke those three words, it was completely and totally calm. It was instantly as smooth as glass, without so much as ripples on the surface. Extraordinary. The power of Jesus truly was on full display. Fourth point. Oh, excuse me. The peace. That's a good one. I wish I had said that or given you the slide when I said it. The word peace means to be silent, be quiet, be muzzled. So write fast because I want to get to my next point. It is marked on my paper, by the way, in case you wonder. I just simply missed it. So nothing new on that one. So anyway, here we go. Are you good? All you note takers? Okay, good. Number four, some penetrating questions. Now, I want you to think back to when you were a child. Now, granted, some of us have to think a lot further back than others of you, but, but hopefully you can still do that. If, if by chance you cannot remember, I'm not really sure I can, but, but if maybe you can't really remember what it was like when you were a kid, I want you then to think about kids that you know. Maybe you're a parent or grandparent or a teacher. I just want you to think about young kids, okay? So if it's too far back for you to remember, Just think about kids that you've seen in today's world, all right? That will give us all ability, I think, to relate to this. Sooner or later, every child, no matter how wonderful they are, sooner or later, every child will do something. I'm saying that singular, but often it's more than it's some things. They will do many things that, well, to be polite, they're not too smart. 
right, in what they do. They do actions that are just not very smart things to do. Now, now sadly, for I, I, will, I will acknowledge this, for as men, we never really seem to outgrow that, not, you know, doing that thing that aren't too smart. Ladies, this is not a place for you to comment. This is where you just don't elbow the person next to you. Don't, don't look, don't nod, don't do any of that. Eyes focused up here, okay, because I don't, I don't want to get in, I don't want to cause any problems, especially between husband and wife. So, but, but here's the thing. After doing something that's, like I said, maybe not too smart, something that, can we even call, sometimes kids do things that are stupid? Can we say it? We're not calling them stupid, but sometimes they can do things that are just stupid, right? And so you sit them down and you ask them, why in the world did you just do that? And the common response, I would say probably the most common response, is, I don't know. <laughs> You're like, what do you mean you don't know? You just did that. Tell me why you did that. <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes, can, can, can we agree on this? Sometimes it's best just not to even answer. When you're asked, why in the world did you do that? Sometimes it's best just to not say anything. To their credit, to their credit, that's what the disciples did. They asked this question that I said earlier. I think it's kind of an insulting question. But Jesus now asked them two questions, and they did not respond. And I think that was wise. Look at verse 40. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And here's the thing. Depends on how you interpret that, how you read that. But I don't think Jesus was asking those questions as a way of chastising them. I don't think he's like, why are you so afraid? What? Have you still no faith? I don't think he did it in kind of a chastising, judgmental, critical way at all. I think he asked those questions in the way that he did to direct their minds from the fear that they were, had been experiencing back to the truth. The truth is this, that he was with them. The truth is that nothing would happen to them that was outside of his control. The truth is that he most certainly cared for them. The truth is that there was nothing, there indeed nothing, that's greater than he is. There's no crisis, there's no storm, there's no difficulty, there's no hardship that is greater than he is. I think his simple questions were asked out of love and compassion. Tim Keller, in his book, Jesus the King, he puts it this way, by asking the questions in the way that he did, Jesus is prompting them to see that the critical factor in their faith is not its strength, but its object. I think that is so crucial, so important for us to understand that. Because here's the thing. When faced with a crisis, it's not about how much faith you have. It's about who you have faith in. That is the key. Because you and I, we all have times when our faith is weak. We don't feel like our faith is strong enough to stand up to the storms that are there before us. There are times when we just struggle. And like I said earlier, we are just barely holding on. Jesus doesn't condemn us for having small, little faith. 
Jesus wants us to look to him. Jesus wants us to focus on him, and it's not the size of our faith. We don't have to belittle ourselves or be hard on ourselves like, why is my faith not stronger? No. Focus on your Savior. That is the key. It's not the size of your faith. It's not how much faith you have. It's about who you have faith in. So, let me suggest three things, three truths that I think are important for us to remind ourselves of, of when we are going through crises. Three things that I think are really important to remind ourselves of. A, remind yourself that Jesus even uses the hard times for your good. I don't know if you caught this when I first read through this, the beginning of this. But the disciples found themselves in the middle of the storm because they obeyed Jesus. It's not that they did anything wrong. They didn't put themselves in harm's way. They obeyed Jesus. They did exactly what he told them to do. And because of that, they found themselves in this terrific, horrifying, terrible storm. You see, contrary to faulty theology, and some will try to claim this, Scripture does not back this up at all. Because sometimes people try to say that if we are really trusting God and if we have strong enough faith, then we are not going to be subjected to difficult, hard times. We're not going to face illness. We're not going to face those tragedies. Those are people who have little faith. That is false. Scripture verifies just the opposite of that very thing. Sometimes... Bad things happen to good people. So why would Jesus allow his disciples, in obedience to him, why would he allow them to be in such a horrific storm? I think it was to make them look to him and to help them better understand who he really was. We don't always deserve the suffering we are going through? Think of Job. That's a classic illustration, right? Job was this very godly, righteous man, but yet God allowed his suffering to refine his faith and to make him know God even better. And it takes 40-some chapters for him to get there, but at the end of that, Job, it was worth it for him because he understood God in a much deeper way way than he had ever done before. And so for Job, all of this suffering, and boy, he suffered more than any of us have ever done. All of that suffering, it was worth it. When we see him someday and ask him about that in heaven, I I promise you, he will say, it was worth it. God uses suffering. Charles Spurgeon, this great preacher, by some called the, the... Prince of Preachers, ministered in in London in the late 19th century. God used him so tremendously. But he was a man who suffered greatly. Physical pain, he would, because I think of envy and pettiness of others, they attacked him often. He was a man who understood what it was to go through some really dark times. He suffered even from discouragement and depression. But he said something, and every time I read this, every time I read it, I'm just amazed 
again by it. And I'm going to be honest with you. I can't truthfully echo his words. I wish I could. I hope and pray that someday I will be able to say what he says with all honesty. But I'm still challenged by this. This is what Spurgeon said. I thank my God for every storm that has wrecked me upon the rock. Christ Jesus. It's not that Spurgeon loved the storms. He, wouldn't love, he didn't love the difficulties and challenges he faced. He didn't love the pain any more than you and I would do that. But he knew that they would draw him closer and closer to Jesus. They knew that they would make him more and more like his Savior. And for him, just like for Job, it made his suffering worth it. <laughs> I'm reminded of Romans 8. Jordan read from that, just the, I think, well, for me, it's my favorite chapter in the entire Bible. But you know this verse, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for those who are called according to his purpose. Remind yourself that Jesus even uses the hard times for your good not saying it's easy. I'll never say that. But I'm saying that God is so good. He even uses the hard times for our good. Second thing I think is important to remind yourself is remind yourself that Jesus always cares about you. Always He cared so much for you that he came to earth. He took on human flesh. He allowed himself to be mocked and to be beaten and ultimately to be killed, nailed to that wicked, cruel cross. He did all of that so that he could save you from your sins. (laughs) In what possible universe could we ever doubt that he really cares about us? that he really cares whether we go through difficult times. Of course he cares. He loved you so much. He died for you. Didn't he prove his love for you at the cross? Didn't he prove his love for you by taking your sins upon himself and dying for your sins? so that you don't have to face the wrath and the judgment of God? He did that for you. Of course he cares. Of course he loves you. And like the disciples here, their question, to be honest, I said earlier it's kind of insulting, but I actually think it's kind of silly. I think we've all been there where we've asked, Jesus, don't you care? Think of the cross, and you will know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, you will know with absolute certainty that he cares. Always, always cares. Third thing that I think is important to remind yourself of, remind yourself that Jesus is greater than any storm you might ever face. The one who spoke a storm into 
absolute stillness and calmness with just three simple words. I tell you this, he has not lost any of his power or authority. None. He is just as powerful now as he was then. Sometimes he will miraculously stop the storm that you are facing. Sometimes he will just take it away. Sometimes he will give you the strength that you need to persevere in and through the storm. I think we all would, we want option A, take us, just stop the storm. That's what we always want. But God sometimes in his divine wisdom chooses option B. But again, he's greater than any storm you might be going through. And as difficult as it might seem and as overwhelming as it might be upon you, He will give you the strength that you need to persevere. But either way, whichever option he chooses, he is in control and he is greater than any crisis, any challenge, any difficulty, any storm that you may face. Now, I started this sermon by reading the verses of the song, Does Jesus Care? I want to... I want to leave you with the chorus. This is what he wrote. To all of those soul-searching questions, oh yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary, the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. I tell you, the authority of the word of God that regardless of what storm you might be facing or will face, my dear friends, know this. Jesus cares. Let your heart be comforted with the reality and the undeniable truth that he does indeed care. And he always will. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you. The storms can seem so large, so big, so terrifying. But you are so much greater. So much greater. And would you help us to remind ourselves of the truth? You've made it very clear in Scripture. You have made it clear through all that you have done in our lives that you truly love us and that, yes, you care. But God, when those storms come and we start to be blinded by the fear, the confusion, the difficulties, the challenges, help us to remind ourselves of those truths, that you care, that you love us, that you always will, that nothing can separate us from your love, and you are greater than any storm we might ever face. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. In your name, amen. Amen.